Well, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, we're in Romans chapter 3. I would really encourage you to grab one on your phone if you don't have one physically in front of you this morning. Um, I was uh, sta- standing back there enjoying a few things. Uh, number one, I was enjoying like our, our seating pattern. Um, I kind of spotted. Usually when the kids leave, like there's this classic Baptist configuration of like empty seats in the front and full seats in the back. And so I like the more spotted. It made me think of kind of leprous, which made me think of last week in my face. So, um, so, so last week I'm in the back and <laughs> Lukey Hampton comes walking by me and he looks up at me, Kale and I are standing there and he looks at me and goes, you have leprosy <laughs> and just keeps walking by. And Kale goes, did he just say you have leprosy? I said, I believe he did. Um, I guess they hit the family devotions the night before. But I, I, I meant to say it last week. I have a spotted look on my face. And in case you've seen it and you're wondering what's going on, like, I grew up in the desert, the high desert of California, not too far from where the Van Newkirks live now. And when you live in California and you are just completely just blistered by the sun all the time, it does bad things to your skin if you're from a northern European origin, I guess. Of which I am, some, I'm some kind of Viking mutt or something like that. And so they gave me some cream to rub on my face, and it, like, it kills your bad skin by like, making it highlighted for like a month, evidently. So I guess some of you guys are like, what's wrong with Scott's face, and you're afraid to talk to me? You could ask me. It's okay. I'm not offended by these things, but that's what it is. My face is getting nuked thanks to Palmdale, California. All right. Um, in our text today, oh, I just have one last thing. I mentioned this at the beginning, but I'm not sure uh, some of you guys weren't here and didn't hear it, but um, we have f- four folks right here in the middle from Chillicothe. Would you guys mind raising your hands and waving? So from time to time, we've been praying for a, a church plant in Chillicothe, and um, those folks right there are the ones that we believe that God is moving on their hearts to move towards planting a church in Chillicothe, and so uh, we've been praying for them. Um, encouraging them, trying to meet up and do those kind of things with those guys. But I'm very thankful for them and thankful for what the Lord is, is putting on their heart and leading them towards. And so as we pray for them in the next coming months, those faces are the ones, and so you can catch them afterwards and talk to them. Great folks. Thankful, guys, for you're here. Um, also, what struck me was just how much our church turns over. You know, our church has turned over probably four times now in the last 11, th- 11 years of our life. Um, I was actually kind of do some head counts and like the James and Stacy being back. Um, like w- our church, like our, our list of people that have been a part of Cross State Church is, is four times longer than the list that currently is here now. And um, I'm just so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for you guys to come back and visit and you guys forever in our hearts. And there's a bunch of other people out there that are forever in our hearts. And uh, thankful for the way the Lord does things in our church, but it's kind of New Testament-y feel to me a little bit. Like, there's just, like, everywhere Paul goes, he's there for, like, three or four years, and I feel like, well, that's kind of par for the course. Like, we have so much turnover, and Randy Lee is rolling out in a couple weeks to various parts of the country. We love you, brother. We're so thankful you've been a part of our church and been a great friend to us, and he gave us an awesome couch. Thanks again <laughs> for that. Um, we'll miss you more than we love your couch. Uh, happily trade that if you roll back into town, Okay. Um, but deeply love you guys and so thankful for the friends and family God's given us here at Cross City. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 today. If you have not been here for Romans so far, Romans is just a meaty book. It's one of the meatiest, if not the meatiest book in the New Testament. It gives a lot of the hows and whys behind everything, a lot of the economics behind it. (coughs) And when that happens, it gets mysterious to us because the economy belongs to God. He's higher, he's above us. And so through this book, in chapter 1, we came to the notion of this thing called the gospel, which is the good news of God. It has appeared on scene in chapter uh, 1, verses 16 to 18. And in it, 
Something new has been revealed. The righteousness of God has finally been seen. Righteousness of God that we can have in our record because we don't have righteousness in ourselves. And it was an exciting thing in chapter 1 that the righteousness of God was revealed because the wrath of God had already been revealed. And it was seen in all kinds of fashions, all kinds of sins throughout all of our cultures, across all of our continents. We see the wrath of God woven into our lives. It's what Twitter is based upon. It's what Facebook is based upon. It's what the, all the news channels. Everything hits the news is usually that, where God has released us over into our godlessness. And we live in it. I was just, just torn up reading stuff this week. Uh, about a 15-year-old girl abducted at a Mavericks game, going to the bathroom. Disappeared for 10 days. They found her, praise God, a state over, but disappeared. Why? Because it's that stuff. It's in us, right? That The sinfulness of humanity is already seen in chapter 1. Therefore, God has revealed his wrath into it to let us see it and notice it's there, but we still don't give a care. But then also in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And now we know how sinners like me and sinners like you can be forgiven and made righteous in Jesus, not on their own inherent worth and their ability to fix their game or deny their bad game, but by confessing their game, confessing their helplessness, and resting in what Jesus has provided through his perfect living, his perfect death, and his victorious resurrection, he can give you and give me righteousness. But the righteousness, the gospels come into the outside world, and the world, to, to some grand degree, just goes, I don't want it. We suppress, the world suppresses that knowledge. God says the, the ability for all of us around the world to look out our windows and see the trees and the skies and the stars that testify that he is divine and he's powerful, it's there in the eyesight of everybody. And they're culpable for it. They will be accountable for that. So in chapter 1, we have the suppression of the things that all mankind sees, suppressing the truth. Therefore, God revealed the wrath. But now the righteousness of God is revealed because those people need help. And then chapter 2 is so much about where God has actually spoken uh, details and information, his special revelation. There even still, when people receive the special goods where God has spoken his words, they still push it down. In fact, they then take that as a club and beat other people with it. The people to whom God spoke was a people group that he created, in order to speak, called the Jewish people. Abraham is the, is the granddaddy, the great-granddaddy of them all. Abraham was not a Jewish guy. He's a wanderer. He's a wanderer, called out of it, and he has then got, made, a, made a deal by God and created a nation of the Jewish people whereby God would, God would unfold his information and communicate through that people. It would be the, the local point where God would communicate through humanity, called the Jews. So in the book, you're going to read Jews, Jews, Jews. It's not talking so much about the ethnic group, the nationality, is talking about the people to whom the Old Testament God had communicated. And once he communicated to them, some of them listened and believed, and a bunch of them didn't. Probably more didn't believe. But they sure liked the fact that they were God's chosen people. They sure take that stick and whack you over the head with it. Um, and as we do find in Christian culture now, right, people that hang out in Christianity, who don't believe Christianity, but love to take that stick, and maybe politically, maybe socially, bat people around with it, shove you down and stand me up so that I'm greater than you. So we have all this happening in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, um, there is this statement saying by Paul saying, those people who don't have the specific information in the Old Testament about God and his covenants and those kind of things, if they are following him from obedience from the heart, they are in a better position 
than the people who are born Jewish but not following God. Your, your religious signs and ceremonies of religion are worthless unless it comes from the heart of belief. So all the signs of Old Testament believing were wonderful if they were coming out of the overflow of a heart that was submitted to God in the first place. And that then brought a question for people. And this is where we're in chapter 3, verse 1. Well then, if the people who were uncircumcised, the non-Jewish people, if they could bring pleasure to God and be accepted by God, um, is there any good at all being a Jew? So please enter with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Okay, by the way, let's just stop for a second. If this is your first toe dip into Christianity, you're like, what the heck is this? Okay, here's the deal. <clears throat> God is very, very kind to give us a lot of the workings behind things. He doesn't just tell us some things and just like little bullet points, like fortune cookie pieces, and just tell you to walk around. He gives you a lot of the what and the how behind things. He teaches uh, these deeper things, these meaty things, to help us understand his heart and his mind, how it all works together. And he extends information deep into kind of mysterious things. But there's great help in that. Okay, so... This is that category. So if this is your first day on the raft of biblical teaching, we love you. Strap up. It's good. I think you can gain where we're going, but I understand this may be a little bit harder to think of than maybe something you've seen on television. So then what advantage has the Jew or what, of what value is circumcision? That's the sign of Judaism. He says much in every way. There is value much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, or literally the words of God. So since being a Jewish person did not simply make them right with God, um, there are advantages of God given to the Jewish people that they may or may not take advantage of. And the argument here is that one of the leading, the first and foremost advantage of being a Jewish person is they are the people to whom God spoke. They are the ones to whom God has actually given the information. You cannot go to Tibet and get the information about the God of heaven. You cannot go to South America to the Incas and find the information about the God of heaven. You can't go to North America or my Viking northern countries in Palmdale. You can't go there and find the information about the God of heaven. You had to go to the Jewish people in the Old Testament to find the information about the God of heaven. He, that is where God has chosen to speak. He created a people in which he would speak. And they were, look at the words, entrusted with the oracles of God. God made a people to whom he would speak in and they would hold those words. They would hold that information that you can't get off of trees and you can't get off stars and you can't even get off the law written on your heart. Chapter 2, verse 15 this new information was held by these people and was not held by anybody else. It's where God chose to speak. And that is an honored position to be the ones to whom God has chosen to speak. And it's a beneficial position because now in the things he spoke, they aren't just like weird strips of information. They're promises. Like one of the great features of God's communication in the Old Testament was this thing called hesed, right? The steadfast love of God. You can't look at a salamander and understand the steadfast love of God on your own. You have to hear it. You have to hear God say, I am full of steadfast love. I do not take my steadfast love from you. You are messed up and go up and down as my followers, but my love is steady. The hope of the gospel is my steady, unending love towards you, not your questionable performance of things. You don't know that unless you hear it from what God himself has said. And where did God say those things? 
They were the sayings, the words, the oracles of God. There was great advantage for the Jewish person because they had the oracles of God. So our, te- our, our sermon today is called this, Presented with Things Too Wonderful for Us. Presented with Things Too Wonderful for Us. Our first piece is this, God has given us his advantageous word. God has given us his advantageous word. Now we, as people, have come into this story long after Christ has come, 2,000 years. Christ in his ministry said, if you actually believed the Old Testament, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Moses wrote about me. That's what Jesus says. So if you actually are believing, if you actually are a believing Jewish person who believes those oracles of God, when you'd encounter the message of Jesus, you would then trust the message of Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the author and the origin of all of these things. All the Old Testament points to me. I'm the flower on the stem of the Old Testament. I am the one that has all been pointing towards. And so these oracles of God, which were initially entrusted to the people of Jews, now are entrusted to God's greater people, of which we Vikings and you South Americans happen to be a part, and the Jews, right? Everyone across the world that would put their hope in Jesus Christ, be reconciled with the God of heaven through the work of Jesus Christ, we now are the ones that these oracles are entrusted. Yes, there's great advantage to being a Jewish person. And so when we think of Judaism now, you're watching the news, um, Judaism, the Jewish people, they aren't just a wash. They aren't just a wash. There's a special spot in God's heart for the nation of Israel. And in the beginning, this is where God was speaking. This is where God was exposing who he was, who we were, telling us the, the connection between the two. And now, and they were the entrusted ones of the oracles of God, and we are now the ones, all believers, Gentiles and Jewish are now the ones entrusted with the oracles of God. It is of great advantage, great advantage and honor for us to know this. So if we are to know God in ourselves, we have to learn it from God's words. It is only in God's own words that we learn about God's love and grace. God's words are not a liability, but an incomparable advantage. Our second piece is this. God alone is trustworthy. So when... Here's the challenge. Okay, we've been going through this book on a linear argument. If you go back and read it, there's basically a linear, linear argument about the unfolding of these things. It culminates in, in verse 1 where Paul says, well, is there an advantage to being Jewish? Absolutely. Absolutely. The ones that God chose to, to entrust the oracles of God with. And he'll go on to say more advantages here as time goes along. But he kind of, he's going along the highway of this argument, and he kind of takes off a little stop in a visitor center, right? Um... Back when I was growing up in Southern California, we used to take vacations up the 395 highway up to like Bishop and Independence and Mammoth and those kind of places. And, um, you know, we looked forward to that trip. It seemed like it's a 24-hour trip. Evidently, I guess it's only four hours. But uh, when you're a kid, right, you're playing those car bingo games and stuff like that. And uh, one of the cool things would be if we pulled off in a visitor center because the visitor center is there to introduce you to unique things in that area that you drive through. Right? There are things in that corridor on the back side of the Eastern Sierras that you're not used to, like tule elk herds. And so you pull off in this visitor center, and they're like giving information on the fish hatcheries and the tule elk herd and Mount Whitney that you'll never identify correctly, and all these kind of things that happen in this greater Bishop Valley. And it gets you ready to look, gets you ready to understand that this little passage, verses 2 to 8, is largely Paul pulling off the side of his highway, introducing you to something that you may not used to be used to be seeing. He's, interesting, he, he's introducing you to deep things. Because 
in these verses coming up, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's been referencing this, that God has a plan. He's referencing that God has power, that God handed them over. That's power and control, right? He, but he's also saying, hey, they have responsibility. He's calling them to repentance. He's offering them salvation. There's, there's these, these showerings of the power and the plan and the majesty and purposes of God, and then these smatterings of, of calls to responsibility and accountability and, and, and obedience and repentance and life. And at some point, when you, if you're really taking those things in and you're not really just blown by, all of a sudden you go, wait a second. I'm seeing conflicts here. And Paul goes, welcome to the visitor center of apparent conflicts. So he actually pulls some of these out. I think it's very, very helpful. This passage, um, every now and then when I'm studying through a passage, it's in a totally different thing than what I started studying out the passage as. This passage was one of those. I got done studying this passage, and it's just completely different than when I first read the passage, if that makes sense. I've always read this passage probably with devotional read eyes. You're just kind of, woo, 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 woo. And you're like, yeah, I get that, I get that. But then the argument opens up, and it's a pretty amazing argument. Our second piece this, God alone is trustworthy. And here he begins to unfold the fact that as you study God and actually listen to what he's saying, the oracles of God, New Testament and Old Testament, as you actually listen to these things, it can get a little bit confusing. And if you're not careful, you can go off road with it. So this is what he says, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? The Jews. What if some of people were they? A brief read of the Old Testament would say yes, all over the place. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And his answer, said with emphaticness in the language, is by no means. By no means. What has caught their attention is if God's in control and God's doing a special thing to the Jews. Some of them falling off the wagon. Does that mean he's not in control? By no means. By no means. He is faithful, and our faithlessness never indicates his faithlessness. He's always faithful, and we are faithless. What if, another way to put this, what if the people that God had given the oracles of God to found those oracles to be undesirable? And time, and time, and time, and time again, they did. Even after God would just bless their faces off in front of them. Let's just take the wisest man in the world, Solomon. Um, if you look through some of the historical books, like 1st and 2nd Chronicles, I mean, it's, it'll, I mean, if you're sitting there with a cup of coffee and you're not rushed, I'm telling you, it will almost bring you to tears to read the account of Solomon. Of like all of this work and building upon all this heritage and all this forgiveness and grace that he's seen and all this prayer from his dad. And Solomon gets up and gives this amazing, amazing prayer of dedication and pleading with God to keep those people from being fools. And when they are fools, to come back. Maybe one of the best prayers ever prayed off the lips of a human and puts together the, Sol the Solomon's temple, one of the greatest structures ever made. And he doesn't even get towards the end of the chapter and he's closing down the temple that he made. He's completely going the opposite way. He's made these small compromises, turned to bigger compromises. He's married uh, hordes and hordes of ladies and bringing in not only them, but all of their deities and their religions. And he's becoming tolerant of them. He starts worshiping them with them. And you just go, what happened? How? This isn't like a generational drift. This is here and now. Time and time again, the people that God has entrusted the oracles of God to and is blessed so abundantly in grace. They, we, walk off and find him undesirable. So what happens if they find him undesirable? Does that mean that 
the words and the giver of the words are unfaithful, unworthy, unworthy of being adored and followed by no means. God's trustworthiness is not dependent or affected by people's response to him. Verse 4, by no means, let God be true, and this is really the response. He says, by no means, and this is the reason behind it, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written in Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So this, this little phrase here, let God be true, this is an appeal to saying, like, let this be firmly established in your mind. This isn't just a wish. This is a call to belief in this. Let, let this be a fundamental truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be trustworthy and true here. Every other human source, here. True, unquestioned, everything else, here. Kind of the opposite of how we start this journey, right? God is highly under question, and we have these great human resources. Maybe we just are impressed with ourselves, or maybe we like some scientist, or maybe we like psychologist of the month, or maybe we like influencer of the month. We like whatever. We have all these human things that are up here, and God is down here, and we judge God based upon human authorities and our own reason and intellect. And in the gospel, God flips it and goes, let this be established. Let God be true. Everyone else a liar in comparison. End of that verse. And prevail when you are judged. So the first way this happens, his believers find him justified by what he has said. So may your words, if you listen to those words, let God be true though everyone were a liar as it is written, referencing Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words, justified by your words. Which means, what upholds God, what upholds the case of God, what do you reference? You reference his words. There's no higher authority to reference. Your eyeballs, those aren't higher reference than God's words. Um, things you read on the internet, they're not higher authority than God's words. Your logical conclusions, those are not higher than God's words. Your favorite petri dish, those are not higher than God's words. What your mom says are not higher than God's words. God's words are pinnacle. And they are pinnacle in the case of testing God's words. He is justified by his words. And number two, prevails when he is judged. So first of all, we find that he is justified by what he says. There is no higher court. There are no higher um, proofs that we can attain to than that. And second of all, when people do judge him, he conquers them. You put God on trial, and you're now an unrighteous person. Oppose God in judgment, and you're now a soon-to-be-conquered foe. He prevails when he is judged. This is an argument that God has placed in the category of this being foundational, foundational and unquestionable. Um, a, a category is called this in the, Old in the Old Testament and New Testament is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. How do we begin thinking? Well, in Psalm 111, it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who practice it have a good understanding and his praise endures forever. And Proverbs 1.7 likewise says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the fundamental presupposition, shall we say, of the way you think is fear of the Lord. That's what God says. Uh, when we start out thinking, okay, what can you know? You have an answer for that. God's answer is, I am there and I am to be feared. Not like go run under a rock feared but to respect it, to align underneath that God is there and he is to be feared. That is the fundamental thought of all true knowledge and all true wisdom and a whole bunch of other things in the scripture that's a really fun scriptural study if you want to take on the fear of the Lord. That is the only true and right presupposition that God has given to us. God existing and being trusted and feared is the only right one. 
Which brings us to what I want to call gospel positioning. Um, I say it in a couple different ways, but, but this. When we are found by the gospel and we are exposed by the gospel, the light has come to us and found that I'm a person who's become independent of the Lord, born that way, and that I decide what's right and wrong, I decide what's good and evil, and I'm self-driven. When the light comes and exposes that, and God invites me, summons me, calls me into the light where he is God and I fear him, I'm owned by him, I would love him, I would adore him, find him delightful, he's my treasure. This new life that he's called me into, that I then trust in the work of Jesus to accomplish, okay, that offer, that life is a new fundamental position where we continually, ongoingly sit at the feet of Jesus. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Crisscross applesauce. We just get down and sit down and say, okay, what do you want to teach me? What do I need to know? And I'll say this again and again. You might hate me for it. I might have to change my analogy someday. But as you sit down, crisscross applesauce, there's a slight lean to it. And it's a really bad, big, fat book of things that, rules that you already have in your whole life, things you think are true, things that are in question. You've got to pull that book out. Because if you don't pull that book out, there's a bunch of rules you're going to make God abide by. Like, this is not true unless you say this. And these things, I don't know much, but I know this is true. That whole book, and you have it, all those pre-established thoughts needs to be surrendered to Jesus too. He is the truth. He is the way that he is the life. And so we bring our pre-thoughts with us. We sit at the feet of Jesus and say, God, I've got a whole bunch of thoughts. I've been walking this planet for 46 years. I'm highly educated or not. I'm highly experienced or not. Um, but I have a bunch of things that are really dependable in here. But I don't know any longer because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so all these things, they're pencil. They're pencil. You rewrite them. And what you're going to find is that as you go along with Jesus and you're studying the scriptures and you're being exposed to the oracles of God, you're going to find out, shoot, I was right. Shoot, I was dead wrong. You're right, wrong, right, wrong, 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 wrong. But you know what? Here's the deal. It's not so much how the score of what you had in that book that really doesn't matter in the end. What really matters is you want him, you want to sit there and listen to what's coming out of his mouth. You want to listen to what's on his heart. He has the words of life. He has life. Uh, I was doing devotions earlier this week, and I got out of Mark, and I crossed over into Second uh, Corinthians and, um, and it, it talks about when you give up this body, you die. Life is swallowed up in life, in real life. What's coming out of his mouth is real life. What we see here is black and, black and white. It's vague, right? What's, what he knows and what he's speaking is real life. You want to sit under all of that. Like, give it to me. Speak truth to me. Don't let me just live in delirium or, or hints or shadows anymore. So we take gospel positioning. We as people, if you know Jesus, and this is really important for you as we go back in the text, to continually assume that position again. Uh, uh, just know how often you pull that book of pre-existing thoughts and rules out of your pocket, and you start like telling yourself and telling the whole world what's up. And you start reacting against things, whatever, based upon what you have in your own pre-described book. But that book needs to sit before Jesus and say, again, I have a bunch of thoughts and opinions, and they may not be right. Please correct these things. I want to be instructed by you. It's that gospel positioning at the foot of the cross. But what this passage really does, not only is we, we start out with this, do we find that God has given us his advantageous words. They're, they're, they're an advantage to us. They are life. And not only is God alone trustworthy, 
these, this little verse right here sets up for the next coming verses this dynamic that the believer understands that God possesses and he uses the right to make claims. And he wants us, calls us to adopt those claims. So he possesses the right to make claims and he calls us to adopt those claims. And we do it in a unique way. Our third piece is this. God alone fundamentally trustworthy in our beginning position in true knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Um, our third piece is this. God's righteousness is never in question. God's righteousness is never in question. Look at verse 5 to 6. And this is phrased in. Notice what's happening. I told you that we're, we're in the side, we're, we're in the visitor center of this, of these uh, like good questions that come up once you start understanding God's word, start studying it. The first one was a good question. What's the advantage of the Jews? That's a good question. The second was a good question. This is the third one, and it's actually a little deeper of a question. But, if our righteousness, sorry, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So, it did show our unrighteousness in chapter 1 by the gospel being showcased because of our unrighteousness. That's, that's where the argument comes from. So, you're saying that God's righteousness has been shown, the gospel shown because our unrighteousness was there. We, we, we are... <laughs> What we meant for evil, God meant for good. So if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Here is a proposed question, accusation, implication. By no means. Oh, sorry, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So, so track it again. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Shall we make the logical conclusion or implication that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in human terms. So he says, this is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. But it's a normal human question to ask that question. Isn't it unrighteous for God to inflict wrath on us if our unrighteousness is actually elevating his righteousness? It's a decent question, a fair question. His answer, verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? You're Western, I'm Western, most of us. When we hear that, we don't like God judging the world. So we have to kind of retrain our thinking again. This whenever God judging the world is an extremely good thing in the Bible. It's great things. It's a really terrible thing to be under it. That's the point of the gospel. You don't have to live under it. But the news is it's coming. And it is dreadful and it is wonderful. It is dreadful to be under the judgment of God. It is, but the judgment of God is itself wonderful because it is God finally fixing this place and fixing us and fixing and just wiping out every last strand of sin across all the universe and finally bringing utter true peace that our political systems never will, that our medicine never will, that all of our technology never will. He will. It's called his judgment. It's a really, really good thing. And in this passage, when he says judgment, he's expecting them to go, yay. Though we as Westerners go, boo. Okay, but that's Western thought. That's not Jesus thought. So G as Jesus thinkers now, the argument is, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? And we all say, yes. But inherent to God's ability to judge the world is that he is established as righteous. Not a shadow of turning, no darkness in him. The gospel is dependent upon God judging the world just as much as, it is, as the goodness depends on and includes our forgiveness. 
and it relies upon his righteousness. Over and over again, it's abundantly stated, he is righteous. But if you simply just took the logical implications of one concept, which doesn't our unrighteousness, since our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, isn't that unjust? If you simply took that phrase and allowed to move into application, you would move into something that would violate the character of God. Welcome to the visitor center. You can't take implications about the character of God. You have to very carefully listen to what he says because the righteousness of God is stated time and time again. Here's a few of them. Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. Isaiah 45, 21. Was it not I the Lord and there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior? 1 John 1. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I heard... The altar is saying, yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Hosea 14, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Or speaking more broadly, even about Jesus being righteous. 1 Peter 2, Christ, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of God, is a settled matter. God is righteous. If you take some theological arguments and statements, some oracles of God, and you quickly just peek into them and then walk away from them, without reading the rest and thinking about the rest, and you allow the implications and questions of that to direct you, it will direct you into areas that are wrong because they violate other things that God has said about him. So our pieces so far. God has given us his advantageous words. Number two, God alone is trustworthy. Number three, God's righteousness is never in question. God's righteousness is perfect and judgment is completely just, even when they seem logically like they would be at odds. God's ability to judge the world is connected to his perfect righteousness and justice. Our fourth and final piece in this text is this. The wonderful things, whoops, here we go. Wonderful things stir wonder or rejection. Wonderful things stir wonder or rejection. What will you do with the things that are wonderful? The wonderful oracles of God that God gives, what will they do to you? Will they draw you to scoffing and rejection? Or will they draw you to awe and wonder? Verse 7. Another one of these questions. But if. So here, here's, here's hypothetical question number four at the visitor center. So, so, but if through my lie, my sin, my belief in the lie that God is not there, not satisfying, not worthy to be followed, my, our lie being the sinful condition that we must all repent from, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, where more and more of his excellence be held and delighted in, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Written from the perspective of a person who doesn't know Jesus, okay? That's so he says, why am I being condemned? It's actually not Paul saying this. He's speaking as a person who doesn't know Jesus. If, through my lie, God's truth abounds for his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And the answer is, not given. He goes, next one. I once was in a meeting one time, uh, Mark and Lynn were in that meeting, um, where people were asking me questions. This is way back in the day. Asking me questions, 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 and I was trying to answer some questions. And then all of a sudden, 
there's no more room for answers to be given. It was just like question, 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 question. It was just became like an attack piece, like the heart was unfolding. A little bit here. Next question. No answer given. Next question. It's a fair, it's a fair question, though. Verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What he's saying here, Paul is saying, some people have slanderous, slanderously said that I'm saying this, that what we're, we're teaching this, and it's not true. We're not saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you do. We're not doing that. That actually, that judgment would be correct if we were actually teaching this. So the first question is given, how is this fair? Verse 7, how is this fair? If God is sovereign, how is God truly good? Answer? not given as so appears. The second question in that verse, verse 8, is this sovereignty would indicate that everything's futile. Like, why not do evil that good may come of it? Two decent questions. When we hit these issues, these deep things of the Lord, we have to know that this, remember this, that God is transcendent. He is beyond us. He is above us. He is not like us. In this passage, I'm just going to point it out just so you see it. Three existing questions towards the end. Number one, doesn't the unbelief of some Jews indicate that God's power has become untrustworthy? Can't we say that he's not sovereign in power? Isn't that the indication? Isn't that the implication? Second question, isn't God unrighteous if he judges those under his sovereign power? Can't, can't we say then that he's not good? Wouldn't that be the implication from it? Third one, isn't all, if, if, isn't all obedience just futile if he has sovereign plan? Can't we say that a man has nothing to do with it, no role? Isn't it just, it's all fatalism? Right, those are all logical implications of a thing that God says, but they're truly logical implications. Fair extrapolations of it, they're not things that God is explicitly saying. And because we're dealing with God and he is not like us, the only things we know about God are the things that he has shown us about himself. So we need to be careful about what he's actually saying, not to the things he's not saying. Um, these are deep areas of the Lord. Let's just look at a couple deep areas of the Lord, right? The fact that God is beyond us. Here's a few passages that kind of hint of that. Job 11. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Daniel 2, he reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we all may do the words of his law. Job 42, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Pa Job is living off extrapolations. God said something, and he's making the implications of living out here. God is deep. Romans 11, and this is New Testament. This comes up in the book a little bit later on. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? God is transcendent above us as humans. You don't know jack about God until God shows you that. You know nothing about him. He, everything we know about him has to be brought down from him into the maple tree, into the sky, then into the oracles of God. That's all provided by him. You and I cannot see and find it on our own. So there's all kinds of things that he chooses not to show us when he chooses to show us so many wonderful things. Our natural trends, here's some, here's some of our trends. So let's just say 
in our Christian circles here. We are often drawn past what God has said. So when God shows us these amazing things, shows us these deep things beyond our pay grade, we often get caught up being drawn into what he, into what he has not said, past what he has said, into what he's not said, and that's where we live. We're trying to fixate, try to put a solve in these things and things he hasn't said. He didn't run out of ink. Could have said it. He has said certain things, but we ignore the things he said to focus on the things he hasn't said. We try to make them, we kind of solve them by our own logical conclusions. And as we do that, when we put a logical conclusion on these things, we often straight up violate another thing that he has said. Like, this isn't a land we don't belong in. We can't swim in these waters. So we take what he said, we're listening to it, listening to it, listening to it, not making extrapolations. Three responses. Number one, sloth. Sloth ignores what isn't immediately interesting or pressing. These amazing things, these wonderful things. It's not immediately interesting, not immediately pressing, therefore isn't interested in the too wonderful until it immediately impacts their life or they get in a fight. Number two, that's sloth. Number two, sass. Others dismiss or mock what God has said, focusing on the implications or logical conclusions of the truths that God has given rather than the truths themselves. Usually done from unbelief. Uh, by unbelievers, this is spiritual sass. Third one, self-suffocating. Without mockery, authentic believers are often so caught up in the questions that come at the end of God's statements that they have suffocated themselves from being able to breathe in the statements. The things that God is pouring out for us to know and be amazed at wondering to operate and function. The things he tells us are the ways by the way we live our lives. They are the whys behind all the what's that we do. But when we're thinking about, well, what he has not he said, or trying to solve it out there, we're, looking, we're just suffocating ourselves and cheating ourselves of those joys and those benefits and dishonoring him. God doesn't explain it all to us, but he explains some of it. And some super, <laughs> some, the most amazing and important things in the world are the things that he himself has explained from his transcendence. When he has lifted us up and let us see, uh, maybe we've had lunch, it's like a fence in your backyard. You can't see over that fence. And like the Grand Canyon's back there, and every now and then he like pops you up and lets you see over that fence, and you see things that are too amazing for you. Let's say the Trinity. You're looking over there, and he goes, okay, I want you to know about the Trinity, New Testament information on this, right? Three persons, one being, okay? And they're one, but they're distinct. What? Um, so, so the Father and the Son, they're one, Yes. But the father's not the son, correct. And the son's not the father, correct. But they're one, yes, right? I don't understand. He goes, I, you're not. I'm just letting you see a little bit over here. I want you to understand you really pray to the father. I want you to understand you really rely on the leading of the third person, the spirit. I want you to understand that when you refer to, to forgiveness um, and the bride, you refer to the, the second person, Jesus. But I don't understand it all. He goes, come on down, right? And we all kind of, right now, most of us in Christianity have gone, all right, that's cool. There's mystery. We understand certain things. And we quit trying to figure out implications, right? We make amazing little diagrams, but there's mystery there. So we respect the things he said, and we respect things he hasn't said. But in other categories of life, it's not that way. When we especially, as Westerners, I don't think this is necessarily true of Eastern, Eastern people in this world. But as Westerners, when we look at the economy of things between God and man, the power of God and the responsibility of man that we've seen happen all through this book, we tend to go, but wait a second, but wait a second. And God goes, I'm going to boost you up. I want you to see this. I gave them over to wrath. I want to boost you up. One says, you're held accountable. I want to boost you up with this, that, that God is going to judge all things. He's exposing us graciously to these wonderful and amazing truths that are true, 
that are way beyond us but are graciously exposed to us. They're wonderful things designed to let us see a special and honored position of the heart of God and who we really are and who he really is. What do we do with the wonder? Be careful that the things too wonderful for us <coughs> bring you to rejection or sass rather than to wonder. Embrace the things God has said even when the implications and questions aren't given to us in his loving wisdom. In his love and in his wisdom, he has left certain mysteries. In his love and in his wisdom, he has not left certain mysteries. So this whole topic of theological deep things, we don't run away from it. These are the wonderful things. And God wants you to know them so you can live. He wants you to know his heart. He wants you to know his power. He wants to know your origin. He wants you to know these things. Don't avoid them because they're wonderful. Run into them because they're wonderful. And when you can't see any farther, we, we celebrate at the end of which God has revealed. And we celebrate everything he has revealed. We love to do it together. I finish out by reading this out of Proverbs chapter 2. Just consider these words from God. Yes, and if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk with integrity guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path for wisdom will come into your heart and the knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, let us be aware thinking listeners to what you're saying, living and listening to what you're saying and not fixated beyond it. Uh, give us the freedom to ask really good questions, to plumb the depths of it, to, to come to the, to the extents of truth that we can, Lord, but may we live in what you have said and may our, make our souls wonder and that we wouldn't flee from the wonderful things. We'd find pleasure there. Father, we praise your name. We thank you that you've given us life in Jesus. as We celebrate communion this morning. We ask that you allow us to just uh, finish out the service with a time of praising your name, remembering who we are in Christ, the great redeemer that he is for us, and the great husband he is to us all. Please be glorified. Please be honored in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.